interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Private Equity Podcast. Uh, joining us today is Rich Ashton, Managing Partner at First Party Capital. Welcome, and thank you very much for joining us today, Rich. Hi, Alex. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to meet you. Perfect. Absolutely, absolutely. So, as is always, Rich, please give us a kind of a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you. Yeah, sure thing. So I am the managing partner of a new venture firm called First Party Capital. We set up the business officially in December, and our focus is on investing in startups in ad tech, martech, digital media, and data, uh, and largely in Europe and APAC. We're an operator-led firm, uh, so my other two partners are founders of companies in the space that we're investing in. And we've also brought together a network of hundreds of senior execs across the industries that we're investing in and looking to become you know, the go-to strategic investor for founders in our space. Excellent. Thank you very much. Very interested to hear, uh, certainly hear more in that. So to kick us off, what kind of one mistake do you either see private equity or venture capital firms or their portfolio companies making? Yeah, so one thing uh, that I've seen a few times over the past seven or eight months is just, I suppose, uh, an over-importance placed on um, metrics. Clearly, they're important, but I believe there should be more of a guiding principle rather than a sort of firm line in the sand. For example, you know, some firms may have a 15% ownership uh, minimum threshold. And in one or two situations, I've seen people willing to walk away from an otherwise very good deal because they would have only had 14.83% ownership, for example. And so I think, yeah, it's obviously important to, to have an understanding of which metrics are, are super critical and which you can be a bit more flexible on and agree those with your partners beforehand. But it does seem that, you know, uh, taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture would help um, to, to actually get those deals done rather than being overly focused on a specific metric like that. Absolutely. I suppose it's focusing on what moves the needle, what do you want to achieve? And exactly. I'm sure there's examples where there is movement um, and there isn't, but certainly 14.83% and uh, 15% minimum. I uh, understand why it's there, but you've got to make those uh, make those adjustments uh, for the right deal and the and the right opportunity. So definitely a bit of uh, flexibility there. So interesting space. You know, you guys are pushing the ad tech, martech, digital media sector. What was it that made you obviously look into those areas and and uh, obviously start a venture firm in it? Yeah, so between the three of us, that's very much our backgrounds. I've been financing companies in the space for the last six years, primarily on the debt side. And as I say, my other partners are founders of companies in the space and have been involved in the industry for 10 and 20 years, respectively. It's an industry we know, you know deeply and have uh, a really strong network uh, globally. And you know, my other partners have been angel investing in the space and advising companies. And you know, we really saw an opportunity outside of the US to, to provide that great combination of capital plus expertise. There's always been quite a lot of money in the US, but frankly, founders have struggled to access capital outside of that market, and particularly from investors that really understand the space. You know, it's no secret that until sort of six months ago, ad tech has been largely out of favor with institutional investors. 
there were some IPOs uh, sort of five, six, seven years ago, Rocket Fuel and one or two others that didn't go so well. Some investors got burnt and decided to pull out of ad tech. It is also a very complex space, to be honest with you. And so for horizontal or industry agnostic investors, it can be difficult to really sort the wheat from the chaff and understand what the best opportunities are. So yeah, you know, we did see an opportunity there, which was at the time, I suppose, slightly counter to the, the sort of herd mentality, if you like. But certainly in the last six months or so, we've, we've seen a really you know, strong, renewed interest in the sector. Uh, so yeah, I suppose it's good timing in that regard. Absolutely, absolutely. And as we see the, you know, certainly Europe moved to a more regulated privacy type settings. Obviously, I'm, I don't know how much has actually changed, you know, instead of Google just taking our data now, we have to now agree to it in order to use Google, which I, I don't know if that changes things materially, but uh, uh, obviously our permission-based perspective, um, mm. whether we read them or not, I think is a different uh, matter. But how are you kind of seeing that European regulation coming in? And I'm sure that both creates a lot of threats to specifically, obviously, the ad tech sector, but also I'm sure it brings a lot of opportunity. So what, what do you guys kind of see? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And, you know, um, off the back of GDPR four or five years ago now, you know, Europe has really positioned itself nicely as the epicenter of privacy first advertising and, and digital media solutions. And as a result, you know, there's been a lot of innovation here in the UK and in Europe, which for, I suppose, the potentially the first time in the industry means that companies here are probably ahead of the curve with regards to their US counterparts. You, you're obviously constantly reading in the press uh, big text to policy changes as well as governments, uh, privacy policy changes. And I think those, you know, they're only going to get tighter and more strict. And yes, it's, it's you know, very much a, a space we're focused on. One of our first investments was a data governance and compliance platform. It was you know, very much helping brands and publishers to stay on the right side of the regulations, understand what data they have. And yeah, you know, in terms of opportunities and threats, clearly there are huge established businesses that have built their infrastructure on the back of third-party cookies, third-party data vendors, and that is going to be very difficult for them over the coming decade. Cookies were meant to be deprecated this year. Google have now made an announcement to say it'd be more like 18 to 24 months winding that down. So there's slightly less pressure in the short term, but ultimately the opportunities lie in the present for companies that are building new solutions for measurement and for targeting in a privacy first way. And, and ultimately those will become the, the go-to solutions of the next decade. So yes, difficult time potentially for legacy businesses, but certainly a huge amount of opportunity for startups that are uh, building with with the new framework in mind. I think it's always interesting to see what the earlier stage um, businesses are doing because like, usually they can be more flexible and move quicker rather than your old legacy businesses take a bit more. Uh, um, we've always done it this way. It will always work. Um, but when law comes into play and they don't have the lobbying that they need, um, then uh, nothing will uh, or nothing will change that. So interesting. So just jumping back to you, Rich, uh, obviously looking at your background, you spent, you know, as you mentioned, in the finance world, but obviously looking at it, it's a lot in the kind of sales, business development, marketing type world. How did you come about obviously setting up your own firm in this space? Yeah, so I've always been interested in investing since I was 18. I opened a nice serve in investing in equities and crypto more recently. But yeah, with regards to the actual roles I've done, they've been very much at early stage companies, usually as the second hire outside of the US. So I have had a reasonable amount of experience launching a business in new markets. And although it was predominantly on the, on the commercial side, 
it was very much in the space that we're currently investing in. So some of the founders that we've invested in in our first couple of deals are actually guys that I've known for four or five years and have got relationships with. That's how I've met my partners, Kevin and Kieran as well. Kevin was a client of mine and Kieran was uh, his company. We did some marketing with back in the day. So yes, slightly different hat, but still very much looking at the same sort of industries. And yeah, with regards to actually launching the venture business, as I say, we, about this time last year, were kicking around some ideas for different funding models and really addressing that gap in the industry. And we felt that our complementary skill sets would come together nicely to, to really provide the full package. And so yeah, so far, so good. Makes sense. Makes sense. So uh, very exciting. So over the time of setting up your, your firm and going through it, what would you have done differently over the last kind of eight months? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, it's, it's really just a case of learning by doing, you know, as that's true of any any startup or sort of first time founder, you know, I suppose we're playing in a space which has a lot of added complexity with regards to regulation and compliance. And, you know, there are a lot of hoops to jump through. So I could easily give my sort of self uh, a lot of advice, you know, looking back with hindsight, but but at the time, actually, you know, it, it was, would have been very difficult to do anything differently, just because you know, the, the classic adage of you don't know what you don't know. We're operating on a very global level. A lot of funds tend to be focused on the UK or the US. And therefore, you know, it's, it fits quite neatly into a certain type of tax or a certain uh, legislation. But we've got investors in 30 plus countries. We're investing globally. And so there wasn't really a neat off the shelf solution. And without going to a law firm and paying hundreds and hundreds of thousands to create a very bespoke structure, we've had to navigate as best we can, the solutions that are on offer and sort of piece together something that actually does work and cater to our needs. Makes sense. Makes sense. It must be pretty, must be pretty tough setting up your, I mean, obviously, you know, COVID is going to be tough um, and that's going to be used as uh, maybe as an excuse for some people, but obviously it is a genuine concern and an issue when, when starting things new brings risk. Um, and obviously people don't want to change, do want to change because of it, but you're not getting the right people or the wrong people. So it can be very difficult, uh, certainly with setting it up, but I'm sure it's been pretty exciting for you as well as, as well and challenging something, you know, allied to what you've been doing, but obviously very new. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the COVID impact has been interesting for us. I think largely it's allowed us to actually have that global footprint quicker than we would have. Clearly everyone's had to adapt to online meetings and, it's now become the norm for better or for worse. Obviously, we'd love to get back to having more more face-to-face meetings as soon as we can. But, you know, in that period of, yeah, as you say, December, January and the start of this year when we were in a, a full lockdown, it meant that you could have five or, or 10 meetings from Japan, Singapore, UK, US throughout the day. And, you know, investors and founders as well were very happy to, to take those meetings and, and do business. In a sort of pre-pandemic, pre-lockdown world, I think, that wouldn't have necessarily been the case. Uh, people would have been more used to, you know, right, well, if I'm going to invest a six-figure or seven-figure check in a, in a company or a fund, I need to meet the, you know, the GPs face-to-face. And so, yeah, there's, that has definitely helped. I think you know now that we're starting to look at making our first few hires outside of the founding team, that face-to-face interaction will be important. I can imagine it has been very hard for companies to higher and onboard people uh, in a remote fashion, especially at, at the more junior end. You know, I think people really do need that uh, face-to-face interaction and, and interaction with the management to really help them understand the company culture and get settled in. So, yeah, as I say, we're now looking at our first hire or two and uh, we will yeah, definitely want to have some face-to-face interaction during the hiring and then onboarding process. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a difficult one. Um, certainly during COVID, obviously, you know, being an executive search firm, we had to make those type of appointments. And uh, one of my comments was, I think we we may struggle here on the because we do work both on the on the investment side and the back office team, but also on the portfolio side. And my comment was, nobody's going to hire a, a chief executive without having met with them. Um, I was proved wrong. We, we did a few deals of uh, okay. certainly that with there's no meeting. It was all just on Zoom. But yeah, I, I completely get it. You know, we've made some additions into the business here and uh, and they were working remotely, obviously with restrictions. But it's um, it's nice to be able to sit down, really feel a culture, really have a conversation. Um, but, uh, you know, there is obviously instances pre-COVID where that kind of conversation will have happened and and whatever else. But I think in the most part, there is a meeting, there's a bringing together. And we had quite a few investment firms that were bringing on associates, investment directors, principals, um, without having met with them, which which really surprised me, actually. And it was it was surprising to see how quickly the, the industry just was like, well, we can either wait and not get these people in and miss out on deals and, and growing the firm, or we can, you know, adopt to this new process and and assess people uh, constructively as we can during uh, using you know, obviously video conferencing so I thought that was quite uh, certainly quite interesting w- what advice would you give to venture capital private equity investors if they were thinking they're listening to this and thinking I'm thinking about selling my own firm probably terrified and very excited <laughs> at the same time I'm sure okay. um, but what advice would you give to them or people thinking about doing the same as, uh, as you've done yeah, I think, you know, first things first, just speak to as many people as possible. That was very helpful in our sort of early journey, reaching out to either people I already knew that had done something similar, or actually, you know, even just cold re- outreach on LinkedIn to some people. And, you know, not all of them came back, of course, but some people were happy to, to take a half an hour phone call. And so I think, yeah, as I say, starting from a point of, of you know, a first time sort of fund manager, uh, that there's, there is so much to learn. And a lot of it is you know, the, the sort of back end setup and that side of things. So, yeah, speak to as many people as you can. I think it's also very important to obviously have a, a very clear differentiating factor, whether that's because of, you know, your own background or type of companies that you're investing in or your just belief in terms of the way that the market is going. There's obviously a huge amount of capital out there, but inevitably, you know, LPs will see a first-time fund as more risky than, you know, an established vehicle. And as a, and as a result, you do need to have that cut through and, and a good enough reason with, you know, for why people should invest in, in a first-time fund manager. I think we were able to position ourselves quite well and it's quite a unique uh, proposal. And then, you know, the third piece, I suppose, is, is that sort of slightly chicken and egg, speaking with investors and speaking with founders. And that is, yeah, it's, it's a tough balance. Clearly, both sides of the equation are extremely important. If I had to sort of pick one or the other, I would almost say, you know, speak with as many companies as you can and start to understand what your deal flow will look like. Of course, you have to speak to investors at the same time, but ultimately they want to know what types of companies you're going to be investing in. And if all you can say is European fintech companies, then that's a lot less specific than, well, we've spoken with 100 companies. Here's 10 that we think, you know, could really become an investment in our portfolio. So, yeah, it's a fine line, but I think ultimately that the, the product that you're packaging up and selling is not only your own experience, but clearly the, the types of companies you're investing in and, and the more you can share around that with potential investors so that it's not completely speculative, uh, I think is definitely going to help to to get those investors over the line. Have you found that having both yourself more on the, the investment side kind of experience and then obviously your other two 
um, founders being more what I regard as operator led. Has that added a lot of value both on potential portfolio company and investments, but also I'm sure you know dealing with LPs and, and having those conversations. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and, and it's those complementary skill sets I think that yeah do come together very nicely. Um, yeah, myself from the from the financing side of things, Kevin and Kieran from actual as you say operators. Kevin's also the the chairman of the IAB's data transparency and taxonomy working group, so an industry body kind of representative, and and you know, Kieran runs the main trade publication in the space, Exchange Wire, also runs a large conference business. So yeah, you know the not only the access to and the experience that the three of us have, but then the way that we've gone about building the angel syndicate, which is 350 industry individuals, means that, you know, yeah, from a portfolio founder perspective, you're not only getting the capital and access to the, the three managing or founding partners, you're actually getting access to a, you know, a network of hundreds and hundreds of people. And that has been, yeah, a really strong USP and has, you know, certainly attracted a lot of deal flow because people are really excited about tapping into that network. Uh, rather than just being a source of capital. And, you know, there's various, uh, there's a spectrum, I suppose, of how formal that engagement is. In most cases, we're leading the rounds and taking board seats. And so there'll be a formal FPC representative as a board member. But equally, you know, a lot of people are investing and saying, well, look, I, I don't have time to be a board member or an advisor, but sure, if the company is looking to expand to the US and they want to pick my brain about, you know, hires or US market entry, then great, sit down and have a half hour or an hour chat with the founder. And so, yeah, that's definitely been really helpful is that kind of strategic value add perspective. And then, yes, look, from an LP side of things, they want to know that obviously, even though we are a first time fund, there's the experience on both the operator side, but then also someone that has completed 50 or 60 financing transactions worth hundreds of millions. Uh, and so, yeah, as I said, there's hopefully quite a nice story there around covering the, the relevant bases. Interesting. We're seeing a lot of both venture and private equity uh, firms going down that that route at the moment, and we're seeing even you know venture usually does things first, and then if it works, private equity will adopt. Um, although technically, all technically is under the banner of private equity, but it's uh, yep. split more naturally uh, uh, in terms of sectors now. But we're definitely seeing a lot more private equity firms taking that kind of move and having more um, you know operators in that senior team. Uh, there's quite a few that uh, I know have founded over the last five years that have got a typical investor um, or somebody with that kind of track record and then somebody who's uh, usually gone through taking a, a business to exit and has quite a uh, feather in their cap, um, to say the least. And it seems to be working uh, certainly quite well uh, from there. Yeah, exactly. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that because you're a good operator, you'll be a good investor. But I think, yeah, it certainly does help to have one or two operators in, in the team. And especially if you are vertical focused like we are, it does mean that we can really go a lot deeper on our due diligence when it comes to the, the technology, the team, the, you know, the, the market fit and everything like that uh, versus, um, as I say, a more sort of industry agnostic investor who might be a great investor but doesn't necessarily have that real expertise in, in the particular vertical. Yeah, and that as, as well as obviously that once you've got that business in your portfolio and, as you mentioned, taking board seats and, and supporting that business with its growth, it's it adds a lot more value where that you've got somebody who's been there and done that and can leverage that kind of experience but that doesn't also just one-on-one -on -one with that company but you know everyone in the vcp firm is able to learn from that individual and pass that through um with all the portfolio companies that, that get added so i think it's a really good way of uh, certainly a good way of operating so what do you love about private equity or venture capital industry and equally what do you what do you dislike about it 
Yeah. So honestly, the, you know, so we've spoken about 150, 160 companies now. And I think that's, you know, for me is, is the most exciting part of the job. It's a real privilege to sit down and speak with a founder, you know, really they're kind of pouring out their, their hopes and dreams to, you know, we're investing at a very early stage, pre-seed to series A. So, but, you know, there's still a lot to be figured out, but, you know, they have huge visions and it's really exciting to feed off their enthusiasm. All entrepreneurs have, uh, I think, you know, that kind of innate uh, positivity and optimism and that really comes through. So, yeah, you know, it's very exciting um, getting the chance to to meet people of, of that type of sort of personality. And yeah, on the flip side, you know, all the investors that we have has been great as well. We have, you know, several people that have, you know, had billion dollar exits that are investing in our funds. So again, you know, been able to sit down and kind of pick those people's brains, bounce ideas of them and just, you know, have access to them and their sort of time and their network is great. So yeah, for me, the the people that I've been able to meet, I suppose, over the last seven or eight months, all, all from my own living room, <laughs> has been fantastic. And to add to that as well, you know, there's, there's, there's obviously so much to learn. I think, you know, even people that have been in venture or PE for, for decades would, would attest to that. You know, things don't stand still. Clearly, we're investing in innovative companies and those will look different in 12 months' time and in five years' time and 10 years' time. It will continue to evolve. So I think, you know, there's never never a sort of dull moment. There's, there's always more to learn. <clears throat> so that that is going to keep me excited for a long time as well. And then, yeah, in terms of disliking or, or things that I would maybe want to change, <clears throat> I think there's still very high barriers to entry. Uh you know, it goes without saying that there's the capital element to it. You know, obviously you have to be able to raise money to, to then invest unless you're a solo GP and you've, you've got your own funds. So I think that's a it's an understandable barrier and one that should be surmountable. However, I still think that between you know, regulators and financial institutions, there needs to be a lot more work done to make it easier for firms to set up in, and really kind of stimulate that flow of capital from LPs to funds to startups. As I touched on earlier, there's there's still a lot of barriers in place. It's still very difficult to work out how things should be set up and feels like, you know, we, we could, as an industry, do a better job of working with regulators to, yeah, to kind of promote that. Totally understand there needs to be regulation in place to, to prevent retail investors particularly, but it does feel like we should be finding ways to enable more people to take part in that wealth creation. Uh, without writing a six-figure check, you know, if they have a, a few grand and they're keen to invest, I think, you know, and that's, you know, where we are, minimum investment for us is five to 10,000, depending on the structure. But, you know, for a lot of firms, just because of the way that the regulation is, they have to accept LPs that can write six-figure checks. And so suddenly, you know, probably 95% of the, of the population, maybe more, are kind of cut out from participating in that. So, yeah, that, that'd be something that I would like to help help think that I could uh, sort of play a small part in over the rest of my career. No, I think it was good. Really good. Okay, perfect. And with regards to your your influences, where, you know, do you read, watch, listen? If so, where do you get that kind of your learning points and expanding your knowledge from? Yeah. So again, I think in the early days, it was speaking with contacts in venture and, and again, understanding kind of where they were getting their material from. So one or two contacts at VC firms uh, shared with me sort of quite handy lists of kind of people to follow on LinkedIn and Twitter and newsletters to follow and that sort of thing. A particular favorite of mine on LinkedIn is a guy called Michael Jackson. He is constantly posting really interesting stuff. Uh, so well worth follow. I'm a big podcast listener. Two favorite ones for me would be the All In podcast, which is moderated by Jason Kalakanakis, who is a, a very well-known angel investor in the U.S., 
uh, and there's some other sort of, you know, very well-known VCs on the pod. And then 20-minute VC as well is great. And then, yeah, you know, I, for, for me, I follow industry press related to our verticals, which is clearly very necessary to stay up with, with the latest trends. But yeah, for, for me, it's probably mainly, yeah, LinkedIn podcasts and then the newsletters um, as they get recommended to me by either other investors or, or indeed founders as well. Interesting. Interesting. I've made a note of that. Michael Jackson, LinkedIn, I'll have to take a look in yeah, sure. my, uh, uh, myself. So uh, I appreciate sharing that. And Rich, if anybody wants to, to reach out to you, uh, listening to this, maybe it's um, someone within private equity, venture capital, or, or maybe a portfolio executive. How best do they uh, they contact you? Yeah, sure thing. So either email or LinkedIn. My email address is rich at firstpartycapital.com or yeah, Richard Ashton on, on LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, that'd be great. Very happy to, to chat with anyone, either you know, as a founder or potential investor, or indeed, as you say, you might have listeners or viewers that are interested in starting on, on the private equity venture capital journey themselves. Obviously, we're, we're still fairly new ourselves, but can definitely pass on some learnings over the last 12 months or so. Absolutely. Well, who better to learn from uh, from that process who's going through it at the moment? It's better than, well, I would argue it's better than speaking to somebody who did it maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, because um, it would be a different experience, but all, all, all I'm sure, valuable uh, from, from there. So, well, Rich, I really appreciate you sharing all of this. Thank you very much uh, for joining us today and sharing all of your insight about you and your firm. Very welcome, Alex. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. So as always, also, thank you very much goes to uh, everyone listening today. Should you ever need support with either private equity, venture capital professionals, or your portfolio executive hiring, please do reach out to me at Raw Selection on the usual channel. channel. Uh, And please do subscribe and you'll be notified of the next podcast uh, coming up. But till the next time, keep smashing it. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.